0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you want to learn more about how to build a meaningful, creative career or careers, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a successful entrepreneur who began his career as a fashion designer, moved into filmmaking and then playwriting, and just became an author. And in the process of these career pivots, he's helped position major brands like Ralph Lauren and Victoria's Secret. But before I introduce you to the incredibly talented Jeffrey Madoff, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And please make sure to check out my new live streaming show every week on LinkedIn. I'll be sharing coronavirus-relevant career advice, interviewing guests live, taking your questions, and of course, featuring your comments, all to empower one million college students to turn your degrees into careers you'll love. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn so you'll know when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jeffrey Madoff, the founder of Madoff Productions, based in New York City. Jeff is a successful entrepreneur who has used his storytelling, interviewing abilities, and fearless creativity to help position major brands like Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Radio City Music Hall, and the Harvard School for Public Health, among many, many others. Jeff began his career as a fashion designer, and before he knew it, he was chosen as one of the top 10 designers in the U.S. He then pivoted to film and video production, and his videos have generated over 100 million views. He since expanded his repertoire, to include playwriting and theatrical producing. And his latest play about rock and roll Hall of Fame legend Lloyd Price will have its world premiere. Get ready. Mark your calendars. February 2022. Jeff is also an adjunct professor at the Parsons School for Design, teaching a course he developed called Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas, and every week, For years, about a dozen or more, Jeff has had a conversation with a different guest from a wide variety of fields, from artists and entrepreneurs to venture capitalists and business leaders. And a book about that class entitled Creative Careers, Making a Living With Your Ideas was just published in 2020. You can get a copy. We are going to have a link in our show notes so you can get it. It is a terrific Book And if you want to learn how to break into creative careers, please check out show notes to find Jeff's espresso shots episode to see
1: whether or not that has dropped.
0: Jeff, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still
1: caffeinated and ready to go? I am so highly caffeinated that my blood is percolating. Oh, my Thank you. God. Thank you for having me
0: on. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe it. It is actually percolating. Well, I know you've done work over the years for the coffee company Ely.
1: Yeah, we did do. We did do a project for them. That's right.
0: Yeah. And I hope I don't get you in trouble by asking you this next question. What coffee do you enjoy
1: in the Madoff household? Believe it or not, I don't drink coffee that often. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I used to. And it's interesting. I have not had a coffee since late February. It just kind of worked out that way. So I get my morning stimulus other ways. Okay. All uh, right. Is that sacrilegious considering the name of your show? I do like coffee, but I just haven't had any for a long time. It's all good.
0: Is that because you don't drink coffee now because of the coronavirus? You just don't yeah. go out
1: to coffee shops? or No. No, actually what it is is that it's getting into a whole other area, but I drink a protein drink in the morning with what are called nootropics in it, and which has caffeine and it is a neural stimulant. And if I had coffee along with that, I would be like one of those bug lights and just spark out. So, uh, so I don't add caffeine to what is already quite a combustible mix. Okay, makes sense.
0: And that does sound like a whole nother conversation that I would actually be interested in having, but at a later <laughs> <Yes>. point. <laughs> so I know you've written a whole book about this subject, how to make a living with your ideas. But is it possible, Jeff, to give us a headline? What do you think is absolutely foundational for our young listeners to do or to cultivate in order for them to build meaningful, creative careers?
1: Well, first of all, I think you have to ask yourself, why do you want to do what you want to do? And, you know, what is your motivation for doing it? Because that's a touchstone that you have to keep coming back to. When I started writing the play about Lloyd Price, I had no idea how long the process took to mount a play and get it up on stage in front of an audience. It takes years. And not all those years are pleasant in terms of what you have to do to get the play up there, raising money, for instance, and things like that. But I knew that the reason I was doing that play is because I so believed in Lloyd and the importance of his story and that the subject matter was so rich and meant so much to me because I think his story is so important that whenever I would hit these walls, I would remember why I was doing it in the first place. And that would continue to then motivate me in order to keep doing it and keep after it. So I think that the first and most important question that you ought to ask yourself as you're beginning to pursue a creative career in earnest is what's motivating you about it? Why do you want to do it? And that becomes your compass in terms of pursuing that career. I know another point because
0: you made it in our Espresso Shots interview that is foundational that you, in fact, ask your students in your Parsons class, and that is to decide what success looks like to you.
1: It's a question you ask them. That's right. Actually, the question I ask every one of my guests in the very first day of class where I don't have a guest, it's just me, and I have them write the answers to a few questions, and one of those most important questions is What is success? And what does success mean to you? And how do you define success? I also ask them, what does failure mean to you? How do you define failure? And I think that it's really important to ask that question when you're young, as opposed to, you know, when you're middle-aged or older and you're looking back over your shoulder, wondering, how did I get here and I hate what I'm doing? And a surprising number of people are really unhappy with what their path in life has been, because they never asked that question. I think many people just assumed that it was making enough money to live in a certain way. And I can tell you, Andrea, that I work with people that are fantastically wealthy, but not particularly happy, because the success that they had financially and materially ultimately seemed kind of hollow, kind of, is this all there is? Because that doesn't solve problems. I mean, solve some problems. Don't get me wrong. As my very wise grandmother used to say, it's better to be rich and healthy than poor and sick. But, you know, past a certain point of wealth, it doesn't really mean anything. But what means something to all of us, regardless of income, is doing something that brings you happiness and fulfillment. And if you can merge that with a career so that you are actually able to make a living with your ideas that make you happy and make you feel fulfilled, that's an, uh, that's an amazing gift you can give yourself. But it takes a lot of work to earn that gift.
0: Mm. Well, your book is full of so much wonderful advice and lessons that you've learned not only from the scores of creatives who you've interviewed in your Parsons class but also that you have learned firsthand from your own career experiences. So before we get more into the meat of your book, Jeff, I actually think it would be cool for our young listeners to hear just how iterative careers, and in this case, creative careers, often are. I know you were very entrepreneurial as a young child, but after you graduated from the University of Wisconsin, with a double major in psychology and philosophy. How the heck did you get into fashion in Madison, Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, I guess it doesn't really seem to follow, does it? No. Uh, So, I worked in this uh, small clothing boutique in Madison. and it was a cool little store. I did the buying for it, which already makes it sound like a bigger store than it was. The owner was only three or four years older than I when he started this store. And I talked him into having me do the buying in New York. So I would find really cool stuff. And because Madison's a major college campus, like the rock bands that would come through Madison, they would come into the store to buy stuff. And it was a fun place at that time. I got a call from a... Dear friend of mine who I grew up with, his mother and my mother grew up together. So I don't remember not knowing him, a guy named Ken Meerman. And Kenny said to me, because he graduated a year before me, and he said, look, I've saved up some money. Can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? So I said, well, you know, I work in this clothing store and I see what sells and I could always draw. So I said, I'll start a clothing company. Now, as I look back, Andrea, I'm glad that like I wasn't in the bathroom or something. I said, I'll start a paper towel, or toilet paper company, but I happened to be in the clothing store. And so I was ignorant, but not stupid. And the difference being ignorant, you can learn stupids forever. And uh, I remember I was so ignorant that when I went to a store and saw fabric on the bolt, I thought that. That was wholesale because it hadn't been made into anything yet. So he sent me what was more money than I had ever had at one time. It's like fifteen or $1,600. And that's what I started the company with. So part of that is also the phrase that one hears, ignorance is bliss, because I thought it was a lot of money. I had no idea how little money that actually was. And I took one of the shirts from the store and cut it apart so I could see the jigsaw puzzle pieces that made a shirt because I had no idea how they were actually constructed. And I got some of the people who did alterations for the store to show some of my designs, put them in the store. They sold out quickly, had another dozen and a half made of concept. So I was off and running with the clothing business and having to learn a business I really knew nothing about. The business very, very fast. I was doubling every two or three months. And within a year and a half, I had financial banking. I had factories in Wisconsin, employed over 110, 120 people, an office in New York. And as you mentioned, I was chosen one of the top 10 young designers in the United States. But I want to give you some context. I think there were only eight of us, so it wasn't so hard to be in the top 10 because at that time, Young people weren't starting businesses. Startups were not a thing back when I started my company. So I learned a tremendous amount. And the biggest takeaway that I got was that as I transitioned into the film business, and we can go into that in just a moment, how that happened. As I transitioned into the film business, I realized, like with clothing, the protocols of the business were the same. And I could apply what I had learned in designing and manufacturing and selling a line of clothing and make it almost seamless in terms of transitioning into film. Now, what do you mean by the protocols were the same? What I learned with the clothing business directly applied to moving into the film business. And what I mean by the protocols are the same is when I was designing a line of clothing, I had to sketch the clothing, I had to break it down into how much material it would take to do it, how much labor and the cost of that to do it, how long would it take to be manufactured so I could ship it by a deadline, get paid, pay off the fabric and the manufacturing and all of that, and that created this cycle of business. When I transitioned into the film, you start off with a storyboard, the sketch, What's the labor I need in order to go out and shoot this story? How much time do I need? What does that cost? The materials, renting equipment, film or videotape at that time, and figuring out all of the costs, the deadline, when was this film due, and then getting paid for my work so I could pay off in the same way the suppliers that I got stuff from, the crew that I used and so on. So... The businesses were very much the same in terms of just what you had to do to accomplish the task and continue to be in business. And it's the same thing in putting together a play. And when you think about it, it's pretty much the same for any kind of business product or service that you're doing. You need to know all those different costs along the line, how much it'll cost you to manufacture it, how much can you sell it for, when you can deliver it by billing the client, and all of those things. So business is business, no matter what you're doing. There may be a different vocabulary, but those protocols and steps you have to go through are the same for any business. So let's rewind just
0: for a moment, because before you decided to get into filmmaking, you made the decision to leave the fashion industry. Or maybe I'm mixing up the story, but at some point you said, I want to leave Madison, Wisconsin and move to New York. But not everybody
1: thought that was a good idea. That's right. You know, when I first started coming to New York, I mentioned I was buying for that store. And initially coming to New York was kind of intimidating. You know, I had not regularly used public transportation. I had not been around those kinds of crowds and just the kind of din that New York City is. And it was kind of intimidating. But As I spent more time there, one of the things I discovered about myself is that I'm a stimulus junkie. And I love the diversity, the energy, and the craziness of New York City. I wanted to move here. What was going on in the business was that we had grown really quickly. That was all very good. But then there was a recession happening. And this was in the uh, early 70s. And that Many accounts were taking, well, many accounts went bankrupt and others were taking a long time to pay their bills. And my backer owned five banks in Wisconsin. And he had been very clear from the beginning when he first invested in me that one of the reasons he was backing me is because I provided employment for Wisconsinites and that was a big attraction to him. And if I moved the business out of New York, he wouldn't continue to back me. So I had a really big decision to make. I could stay in Wisconsin, weather the financial storm, because I was in a position to do that. But then I had to stay in Wisconsin. Or I could close the business and move to New York and do something else. And that was a big deal because I was like. 23, 24 years old, and laying people off was really painful because by far I was the youngest person in the company. And most of the people that worked for me had families. I was acutely aware of how this impacted their lives. And that was really tough to deal with, but I had to make a decision. Meanwhile, people that I knew in Wisconsin were saying, do you have a job lined up in New York? No. Do you have a place to live in New York? No. Do you know anybody there? No. Why aren't you afraid of leaving? And I said, no, I'm afraid of staying. And, you know, I learned from my dad that money comes and goes, but time only goes. So I had to make a pretty profound decision at a young age. And that was to close the business and move. And, you know, would I be viewed as a failure because I was going to be closing the business? I thought about that, but I thought about I'm young and I've got a lot ahead of me. And failure is only when you give up on your dream or compromise your principles. Otherwise, it's just part of the whole process of trying to launch a business and the whole process of life. So it's only failure if it stops you. Mm. So I decided to close the business and move to New York.
0: That's so interesting, Jeff, that there was a recession going on when you did this. Because especially in this current economic environment, with the coronavirus sending ripples throughout the U.S. economy, what advice Do you have for our young listeners who have a large amount of school debt, of school loans, and maybe extra afraid, extra fearful to take a
1: risk with their career? So, there's a couple things. One thing is, and this is, there's data out on this, but whether you are in a recession or whether it's boom times, the failure rates of businesses is pretty much the same. So, you know, look at it this way. If you're starting a business during really bad economic times, they can only get better. The question is, you know, do you have the runway, the survival money, because it'll take you a little while to get that business going, but you shouldn't be afraid to start it because times are bad. Now, if you're starting a business in these times, it requires people congregating together indoors. You got to rethink that. But that doesn't mean that you can't start planning that business. So, you know, there's certain businesses, by the way, that are flourishing during COVID. Streaming services are flourishing. Home delivery of food is flourishing. Grocery stores are flourishing. Home improvement things, whether it's renovating your house or working on your car, all those businesses are doing better now than they've done in years because people have more time at home and they're taking on these projects. So as bad as things are, there's always opportunities. And you have to look at the whole picture and find what are the opportunities. And of those opportunities, what is appealing to you in terms of doing it? You know, Zoom is a great example. Who heard of Zoom back in January? Very few people. Now it's become a generic. Let's do a Zoom call. You know, so there are always opportunities no matter how bad things get. When towns are decimated by storms, somebody is going to be rebuilding those houses and buying the material to do it and hiring people to do it. So there are cycles that happen all of the time. And it's important to not just focus on the terrible things that have happened, but also look at what are the new opportunities that this presents? Because there are opportunities there. And what are they?
0: Yes. You make a super important point in your book that learning doesn't stop when you graduate from college. And I think that that really applies to especially those who decide they might want to start their own business or go into an industry that maybe scares them a little bit. They feel outside their comfort zone because when you are open, to those new experiences. And when you push yourself outside your comfort zone, that is where the real magic
1: happens. Oh, absolutely. And, and I want to mention one other thing specifically about creative careers. And that is that the greatest works of creativity, and I'm talking about novels, plays, movies, paintings, dance, music, That was a weird accent. Music. I meant to say music. The greatest works all happen during times of either national crisis or personal crisis. And that creates a vulnerability that if you're a creative person, you can channel and use those energies to do great work. And because your emotions are raw and you are open, that expression will be uniquely you. And if you look at when great things have been done, you'll see that there's often a correlation, whether it's a world war, a recession, somebody's lost a loved one, a relationship crashes, financial difficulties ensue. These are the things that often fuel great creative work that resonates and becomes classic for the ages. So there are these things that happen and learning how to use that fear and use that anxiety and channel it into one's creative pursuits can be very powerful. Well, speaking of creative pursuits, how did your work
0: with filmmaking and the video start? And how did you learn it,
1: Jeff? So ultimately, I'm seduced by ideas. And I've been fortunate enough to make enough money To support my lifestyle and then, which is not extravagant, but also, you know, I got married, have two kids, live in New York City. My kids went to private school and college. It's not cheap, but I've always been able to make a living with my ideas. And so I've always figured out how to do that. And I think that when you're an entrepreneur, you're very opportunity focused and you think about things that maybe other people don't think about because your antenna for opportunity is up and you're receiving those signals of things that you can do. When I moved to New York, I had enough money saved up that if I lived frugally, which I did, and remember I was like 24 20, 25 when I moved to New York, I had enough money saved up that you know I would house sit or actually apartment sit, lived in different parts of the city to learn those parts of the city and try to decide where I wanted to live. And I had a good reputation in the fashion business. So I was approached to start another company. I started another company, built it up, and sold it. And at that time, I was at a meeting with one of my fabric suppliers. And the guy that owned the fabric company, a really nice man, said to me, do you know anything about the movie business? I said, not really. No. I mean, I go to movies. I've read books about film. I love film, but do I really know anything about it? Nah, not really. And he said, well, look, you're the same age as my son. You seem like you've got a good head on your shoulders for business. He's gotten involved with some people. Would you mind meeting him? I said, of course, I'd be happy to meet him. Well, his son had bought rights to William Burroughs' book, Junkie, and it was going to be directed by Dennis Hopper. Oof! And it was the adaptation was being done by William Burroughs, Dennis Hopper, and Terry Southern. And maybe your listeners don't know who these people are, but William Burroughs is one of the foundational individuals of the beat movement in the 50s and 60s. Dennis Hopper has a long and storied career in film, and Terry Southern had a long and storied career as a writer. And this friend of mine's son... Had bought the rights to Junkie, optioned the rights to Burroughs' book Junkie, and was going to make the movie. So I enter into this scene meeting these people. What I discovered was oh, this is really storytelling here. I love storytelling. This is really interesting to me. And I also learned some other lessons. The main thing was that at that time, those people were never going to get this film made because. They got a suite at the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan, and they would start drinking and doing other substances, starting at about five in the afternoon, get to work at about one in the morning, work till about five in the morning, mostly arguing and drinking. And I said to my friend, and I'm really short circuiting this story. I said to my friend, they're going to squeeze you out. You've got all these people together they don't need you anymore. And he said, "But it's my movie." And I said, "How much did you pay for the option?" $15,000. "How long have you had it?" 3 months. And I said, "I think they're going to make you an offer." Which they did, and they offered him 45,000, and I said, "Take it. You've tripled your money in just a few months, and the film's never going to get made, not with these guys because they can't get it together enough to even go out to get lunch." <laughs> and uh sure enough, he got the money. And that film, actually, Dennis Hopper offered me a part in the movie, which at first I was excited about until I realized that was not going to get made. But what I did learn is some of the process that goes into what you do when you're going to make a film. Storyboards, story, costs, you know, the budgeting, the things I spoke about before. And I saw, well, that's not so alien from what I'm doing. And I met some people who were starting a production company as a result of this. And that's how I transitioned into doing film. So it was an interesting pause and time for me to transition into another business. So it was a very interesting time. And, you know, the glow goes off a celebrity pretty quickly when you're around it a lot. And unless they have their lives together, they're as troubled as everybody else is. And you lose track that, oh, these are celebrities and they're famous people. It's more, these are people and they're not getting the job done. <laughs> <laughs> and I was fortunately able to give my friend's son, who I became friends with, good advice. So at least he profited from it, although nobody else did. <laughs> well, someone who you did start
0: working with and have had a very long, fruitful Productive working relationship with is Ralph Lauren. How did you come to meet Ralph, and what was your first project together? Do you remember?
1: yeah, I do. I had started my own company, my first client was the designer Halston, who was at that time probably the most significant American designer women'swear and I knew that Ralph Lauren was looking for somebody to video his fashion shows. So I was called by Ann Magnon who was at that time head of Ralph's public relations, and to come in and meet with Ralph as someone, a candidate to shoot their shows. Ralph and I hit it off, and that began a relationship that continued for like 36 years. And, you know, I was exposed to and learned a lot because at that time, Ralph was not the global company nor the public company that he became. So I was fortunate enough to see firsthand how someone built a brand and how somebody scaled that company and how that all came together. So I had a fascinating vantage point from which to view the growth of what became one of the most iconic fashion brands in the world. And one of my favorite
0: designers, for sure. And that is such a great example, Jeff, of a point that you make in your book, that relationships
1: are the true currency in life. That's right. And, you know, it's the relationships that you have in business. It's the relationships that you have in your life. It's also, by the way, important, and this is an important lesson I learned, is distinguishing between the kinds of relationships. So business relationships are transactional. That doesn't mean that they're not pleasant, doesn't mean that they're not fun, but they're based on a need and a fulfillment of that need. And that's, you know, when you hear that term in some of the gangster movies, you know, this isn't personal, it's just business. That's kind of how it is. And I was very fortunate and had extraordinary longevity with Ralph because the number one guy liked me. And even though there were new people that came in to the company, they wanted to bring their cronies in. Ralph liked me, liked my work. I made him comfortable and made him laugh. And we enjoyed each other. So we had a relationship and it was a transactional relationship, but we were very friendly with each other, but I never mistook it for actual friendship, but it was a wonderful professional relationship and we enjoyed each other very much. And I learned a lot from him just by being able to observe. I mean, imagine I'm with Ralph Lauren when he's putting together his collections, when he's in his creative mode, sometimes up to four times a year. And then I would interview him. I've probably done more interviews with him than anybody. And because we had a good relationship, he was very open during those interviews. And I learned a tremendous amount from him, which is really great. But then there's your family and your closest friends. And it's not about transaction. It's about a genuine caring about that other person. And, you know, in business, you need both relationships. But the ones with friends and family, I hope for your listeners, and for everybody, those are the most enduring. Because those are the ones that are there at three in the morning when the shit is hitting the fan. And those are the people that you can call. You're not going to call somebody you're doing business with when times are hard. So those core relationships that are not transactional, but true love and friendship, those are the ones that are the most important and it's important not to mistake one for the other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the misconceptions that you address in your book is actually about creativity and who can be considered to have a creative career. And I love that you say that it's a misconception that you must be a painter, a writer, an actor, or a dancer, or someone in the arts
1: in order to have a creative career. Well, you know, the root word for creative is creatus, which is a Greek term. It's an agricultural term, and it means to grow. So you put in a seed, and something grows from that seed. And creativity, as you mentioned, is traditionally defined as one of the various art forms, be it film or writing or dance or whatever. And I posit that you can be an entrepreneur... And you're creative because you were starting a business. So an idea that you had in your head manifests into something else and you've created a business. That's a creative pursuit. And I define creativity as a compelling need to bring about change. And the thing about creativity is it's always solving one kind of a problem or another. So it could be a business solution to something. Or it could be a personal issue of expression you're trying to work out. But I think that you can be, as I mentioned in the book, you can be a dentist and come up with some kind of a painless drilling that is fast and cheap and effective. Well, that's very creative. We don't necessarily think of that kind of thing as creative, but it's the manifestation of an idea that became something else and facilitated change. And I think that that to me, is also a creative pursuit. Doesn't happen to interest me. But I think that we don't need to restrict creativity to just the arts. I think that we can look at creative acts in a much broader sense.
0: Jeff, among the questions I try to ask all time for coffee guests are, and this requires flashing back to when you were at the University of Wisconsin with your double major in psychology and philosophy, did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated?
1: I had no idea. You know, one of the constants in my life is I have not let ignorance stop me from pursuing something because I have the confidence that I will learn. As I mentioned, I'm seduced by ideas. You know, I hadn't written a play before, but I found the story so compelling and I was very, I was compelled to tell Lloyd's story. After I met him and did a short documentary about him and learned about his life, I was so seduced by the story of his life that I said to him, I know I can capture your voice. I want to tell you your story. And I wrote the first few scenes. I acted them out for him and he loved it. And that started that relationship and me going down that path. So I've never really known. I didn't know before I got that gig to make the film about Lloyd. I never thought about doing a play about him. So it's when something happens and I see something that's a potential opportunity and it so grabs me that I can figure out how to do it. I feel that I can figure out how to do it and meet that challenge. The flip side of that is If I'm not interested, I can't even figure out how to unscrew a jar, no matter how simple it is, because I just don't care. But if I care, I don't care how complicated it is, because again, it goes back to the motivation and why I'm doing something. And so that propels me to learn. And I'm definitely someone that places the highest premium on curiosity. And curiosity fosters the desire to keep learning. And I think that one ought to keep learning their whole life because that only keeps your life interesting, it keeps you interesting because there's nothing worse than being around people who think they know everything. Oh, my goodness.
0: Well, then I guess we're not going to be able to spend time together anymore. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. I actually want to just follow up with a very quick question because I think it's super important here. I think... Some of our listeners may be under the m- misimpression that people like you, and honestly, people like me who've gone into industries that we knew nothing about before we did it, were not afraid or did not experience fear. And I, for one, definitely had that, oh, what am I doing? I can't believe this. But fundamentally, a confidence that I would figure it out. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that happens, and I really mean this, the worst thing that happens is that you fail. Okay. You pick yourself up, you move on. But I'm curious, were you, did you ever experience a feeling of fear of like, oh, but then went ahead anyway?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of different things. And oftentimes, the stakes were quite high. And what I mean by the stakes were quite high is it could be a tremendous opportunity or a hugely public disaster. And what I mean by that is, for instance, I did Ralph Lauren's Lifetime Achievement film. It was introduced by Audrey Hepburn. And for your listeners who don't know who she is, look her up. She is one of the most iconic of actresses. It was being presented at a black tie affair at Lincoln Center. And I had convinced Ralph on this film that I wanted to start it in a way that he didn't want to start it, which was with actually with a baby picture of him. And he was winning this Lifetime Achievement Award, and I wanted to go back to the beginning of his life. And he said, no. And I said, look, you've got all these beautiful pictures that have been taken later in life, all done by professional photographers, and they're all very nice, but there's no emotion or humanity. They're beautifully composed. But I want people to see you, your family. I want to see home movies. I want to see pictures from your photo albums. And he said no. And then I I coincidentally, and this was a coincidence, I had in my backpack, I was having dinner at his house that evening, and I had in my backpack a video that I had just finished for my parents. And it was 50th wedding anniversary. And I put together this film and put it to some wonderful, evocative music. Actually, the theme song, the theme from Cinema Paradiso, mm-hmm. which is just wonderful and evocative. And I show it to Ralph and Ricky, his wife. And at the end of the film, they're crying. Tears are coming down their cheeks. And Ralph looks at me and says, I don't even know these people and I'm crying. And I said, well, that's what I want to do for you. So I got his blessing to do that. Well, we're at Lincoln Center. Audrey Hepburn is about to introduce it. The audience, suffice to say, the fashion audience and press is a pretty rough audience. And I knew one of two things was going to happen. Either I was going to get great crowd response or it would get slaughtered. And there wasn't going to be any in between. And it was taken a really big chance. And if it got slaughtered, not only would I not work for Ralph again, I would be slaughtered very publicly in terms of what I put out there. So Audrey introduces the film. The auditorium darkens. It comes up on the screen and fades up to Ralph's baby picture. And there was this collective, ah, oh, from the audience, Because nobody was expecting that because Ralph has never revealed any of that real life stuff before. And by the end of the film, people were on their feet applauding. And I knew I nailed it. Was I scared before? Yeah, there was a lot at stake. And so I'm giving you an actual story that happened, but there's been variations on that story many times. As recently as the curtain going up on my workshop, my play, where there were already years of effort into it, money raised and spent, and waiting for that response. And would it live to see another day and see another iteration? So these are all kind of, for me, high stakes games. But, you know, fear is natural. And it's built into our wiring as human beings and mammals. So there are things that scare us. And I think when you are doing something creative, that fear can also be something that fuels you. Because I think in order to do the best work, as we were talking about before, you have to commit. So you also commit to the fear. You do not let it stop you. Love it. I have two final questions, Jeff. And this
0: one has to do with a time in your professional life when you really struggled. And maybe you didn't get a standing ovation. Maybe it flopped. Or maybe you got fired as I did twice in my 40s. But most importantly here is how you powered through and a lesson that you may have learned in the
1: process. Yeah, you know, uh, I certainly don't get every job that I'm up for. There are things that are totally unpredictable, like COVID, where there is no production going on because the protocols or such haven't been established for safety. You can't get crews together. You can't put a group of people in a room and, you know, just surviving that. And by the way, I had to survive 9-11 when all production business stopped and all travel stopped the recession in 2008, the recession in 1983. You know, there have been various times where just out of control, out of my control, stuff happened that's very scary because you wonder, how am I going to make payroll next month if this situation doesn't change? So there has been many times where I've had to confront that struggle. Have I presented work that has flopped I really haven't. Some things are extremely well-received, and other things are salvageable if there is a problem. So I take a great deal of pride in the work that I do, and I know the given circumstances of the job that I'm doing. I've avoided embarrassing myself in front of a client. And that embarrassment would come from me not delivering on the promise of what I said I was going to do. But there have been many times where I don't, I don't even get the job. So I don't even get a chance to be accepted or not accepted. Yeah. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Of course. You know, and there's political reasons within companies, new people come in, they want to bring in people they know and are comfortable with. And so the quality of work that you've done or the longevity that you've had doesn't mean anything when those circumstances change. So you just have to have enough confidence in yourself that somebody else will hire you. That that's not the only job in town. That's not the only job you'll get. So it's painful going through it, but you have to have that confidence in yourself that ultimately you will get that other job and you will continue to move forward. Yep, and the economy will bounce back. It always
0: does. And it will. Final question, Jeff. Thank you so much for that. If you could go back to the University of Wisconsin and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Whatever advice I would give myself, I probably, my younger self, wouldn't have listened anyhow. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. Again, you know, I think that advice is something that most people are very willing to, you know, to dispense. And that's a one-way street. And I much rather engage and learn from a dialogue, more Socratic method, if you will. So I can't imagine anything that I could have said to myself that would somehow have changed the path of my life coming out of college because I have always gone after those things that have interested me. And I always at least had the courage and commitment to do that because I've never had a regular job since I was a teenager. So I guess I learned those things earlier. And by the way, I come by them honestly. My mom and dad are both entrepreneurs. My sister has her own business. She's an entrepreneur. And so part of being an entrepreneur, and I think a necessary condition, is you're unemployable. So that was never a challenge I had. I think I'm unemployable in terms of becoming an employee someplace.
0: Oh, I doubt that. Well, Jeff's book is entitled Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. It was just published in June of 2020. I highly recommend it. And Jeff, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee, even though you don't drink it anymore. And that power breakfast that you have sounds delicious, (laughs) but it was just such a treat for me to have this opportunity to learn from you and just get to share all of your wisdom with my young audience.
1: Well, Andrea, I totally enjoyed it. It was a wonderful conversation. Even though we're doing this remotely and via Skype, I feel like I've just been sitting with a friend having a really good conversation. Thank you very much.